This is a Suno India production and you're listening to the Suno India show. The school closures in India due to the COVID-19 pandemic have been among the longest in the world. For those of you who have children, it is no secret that the pandemic has adversely affected the educational outcomes. the overwhelming majority of india's 250 million children who are now returning to schools had no regular contact with teachers or structured learning opportunities during the pandemic leading to an education emergency of incalculable proportions a survey conducted by road scholars earlier this year in 15 states and union territories found that 76% of the children in urban areas and 92% of the children in rural areas were not taking online classes In fact, less than 40% of urban families and only 13% of rural families had any form of communication with the teacher during the school shutdown. About half the children surveyed could not read beyond a few words. Yet state governments are reopening schools as if nothing serious occurred. Students have been moved up by two grades and the normal syllabus is being followed. Often after a short remedial course to bring them up to grade level. The struggle to access learning has affected school enrollments as well. The status of education report released by Pratham Foundation recently revealed a big jump in government school enrollment accompanied by a fall in private school enrollment. The increase in government school enrollment is across the board, all age groups, grades and for both boys and girls. As schools have gradually reopened, a new concern has crept up in the minds of educators and parents alike. How will children cope up with the vast gap that has developed in their academics? To help state governments and education professionals address this grave situation, India's National Coalition on Education Emergency or NCEE released a report called A Future at Stake, organizing the education recovery for the most vulnerable. The NCEE is a network of like-minded organizations that have come together to address the problems created by school closure. for the past nearly 2 years now and causing what they term a state of education emergency Hi I'm Kunika Balhotra your host for this new episode of the Suno India show This is the second episode in the two part series on schools reopening all over the country In this episode we speak with Dr Sajita Bashir to understand what steps school and government should take to address this education emergency Dr Bashir is the core member of the NCEE and has written the report which provides guidelines for reopening and resuming school education. She is a former advisor in the office of the global director of the education practice in the World Bank where she led the work on digital skills. She co-authored the regional publication The Converging Technology Revolution and Human Capital: Potential and Implications for South Asia. Prior to joining the World Bank she was head of the National Research and Evaluation Unit within the government of India's National District Primary Education Program. Thank you so much for speaking with us we read your wonderful report. I will dive right in. So we know from several different studies now about the pandemic reducing access to education and even impacting the reading capacity of children. The report says that we are in a state of educational emergency. Can you explain the context and how is this situation different and how should the government be reacting to this emergency as you call it? 
First of all, thank you very much for having me on this podcast. And I also want to thank the many people and organizations who came together in the National Coalition on the Education Emergency in India as a great voluntary effort and which just started a few months ago. So we call this an education emergency for a deliberate reason, because it is an unprecedented situation and because the damage to tens of millions of children is really profound. Um, at no time since independence uh, have schools been closed for so long. While a small minority has carried on more or less, you know, as normal. Yes, they're studying from home, but they have access to tutoring, they have access to online education, educated parents, and so on. For the overwhelming majority, just think about this, that there were no meaningful educational opportunities for 18 months. And we know that without structured learning opportunities, particularly age-appropriate cognitive and um, socio-emotional stimulation, the neural foundations for, you know, uh, the development of the child and of its brain, right, is heavily compromised. So I can give an anal analogy. If children in our country were starved or got very little food for 18 months, we would call it an emergency, right? Because we would see their wasted bodies, their arms, their legs, you know, or malnourished children. But the brains and minds of these children have been starved of learning for 18 months. But we don't see it. It's not visible. So we don't reg register it as an emergency. But it's an emergency because this is the period when children's brains grow the most rapidly in infancy, early infancy and early childhood and in early adolescence. What you can't do at that stage with the brain, it's very hard to recoup later. So the government should treat it as an emergency, not as business as usual. After every disaster, there's a period of recovery. And we are saying there should be a multi-year plan. Uh, it will take two to three years, not two to three months for the education system to recover. And even something as simple as keeping children in school, which has taken us over two decades to achieve, this will be a big challenge. So we need a comprehensive approach and a multi-year approach. Okay, so the school survey found that less than 40% of urban families and only 13% of rural families had any form of communication with the teacher during the school shutdown. Could you please share how these communication links can be rebuilt as the schools reopen? So you raise a very important point. I think it's been an abject failure of our education system that for this long, children have had no communication from their teachers or from the schools in general. Um, there's been an over-reliance on digital technologies and phones and WhatsApp messages when we know that there's poor connectivity and children don't have access to phones. So after all, there were means of communication bef before these technologies and we should have used them. But now, as you say, we need to rectify the situation. And so we are saying in this document, in this publication of Future at Stake, that communication should not 
be considered as something peripheral. It's really very, very central to the whole education recovery. Again, using my analogy, if you know, if you've had a flood or a disaster and children, you know, people were stranded different ways, what's the first thing you have to do? It's to have really good communications, tell people where to go, what is the problem, what are the services that are being provided. So parents and children should know what is going on when schools are reopening, how will classes be reorganized, what will children learn, what do you need to do support children. And the first set of communications should be about coming back to school. We shouldn't assume this will just happen. Um, some children are working and some children are helping with their families and some children have just lost the habit of going to school. So a strong communication effort using local radio, uh, not everyone watches TV, so social media and listing local groups. Some states like Tamil Nadu are even using buses and dance groups and so on. That kind of communication is required. But we also need to weigh communication. Parents should be able to report problems they're facing. For instance, they're not getting transfer certificates or their child is not learning or doesn't want to go to school. What do I do about this, right? And teachers and school HMs should be also able to communicate what is the problem in their schools, they haven't got supplies and so on. Let's remember in COVID-19 and in the migrant crisis, those states and districts that had very effective communication cells going right from the state chief minister's office down to the district level, they manage the crisis best. So if we treat this as an education emergency, we must take the same effort on communications. Also, what do you mean by caring learning environment for children? How should schools prepare for establishing this caring learning environment to engage children in this academic process? Right. Well, schools should always be a caring learning environment. But let's consider the situation now. These children tens of millions, I'm talking of literally tens of millions of children, they've suffered enormous trauma. Just being in their homes or neighborhoods for 18 months, just virtually locked up, at least that's the case for many girls. Just imagine the trauma that involves. And when children are asked, you ask any child what they missed most during this period, they said, not being able to be with our friends. Okay, so the socialization, the play, the affection they get from their peers, this is one of the most important things that children feel starved of. And that's adding to the psychological problems. And then added to that, many, many children are facing poverty, hunger, loss of jobs, and so on. Just put it in context, India had one of the largest contractions in GDP in the entire world in 2020. About 85% of Indian households, including middle-class households, reported income losses in 2020. So what is the effect of that on children? So a caring learning environment means children are welcomed back into school by caring adults, that's teachers, who look after their well-being in an all-round manner. 
we cannot create a caring environment by pushing children immediately into cramming their lessons and accelerating their learning and telling them that they have suffered learning losses so they must catch up as if they are to blame and somehow they have to take responsibility alone. Actually, they must be allowed to open up, share their experiences, including examples of great resilience that they have learned during this. It's not all neg negative. Reestablish their friendships and relationships of trust and learn how to concentrate, how to focus on their studies, learn how to learn. They've lost that habit. It's a great mistake to assume that all these things would happen automatically or teachers will know how to do because it is unprecedented. So it's not a question of issuing a circular, let's have a caring learning environment. It's not that. It's really of supporting the teachers to create that kind of environment. And that's why the first few months are really critical and we think the curriculum should be reorganized for that. Yeah, also the report says that storytelling, songs, games and sports are the best pedagogical tools for establishing a care learning environment. Could you discuss how these tools work and how children engage with academics? If you bring kids back immediately and you say we are now in chapter seven of this textbook and, you know, let's start <laughs> droning on about that textbook, which child is wants to come who hasn't been engaged with learning, doesn't even know and probably can't read, okay? So approaches like storytelling, sports, games, and so on, they're important for socio-emotional development and they're also important for literacy instruction. So they allow children to express themselves freely, to enjoy themselves at school, to relate to and collaborate to, with other kids, you know, in games and in uh, communal storytelling, to build their self-confidence in learning, to trust the teacher and so on. So these are very important socio-emotional development characteristics and it's crucial to academic progress. A child who's worried and upset and thinks they can't do well and they can't even understand the textbook, how are they going to cope with the curriculum? But this is also important from the focus, from the point of view of literacy development, which we are saying should be one of the central focuses of the education recovery. And it doesn't come from textbooks. Um, so approaches we mentioned can help with literacy uh, instruction, not even just storytelling, but even games, you know, listening to instructions, following instructions, expressing yourself, talking to each other, reading, speaking, listening, and writing. These are important aspects of literacy instruction, and they can be taught without even understanding explicitly, they can be taught through these other approaches. So as you mentioned, we know that with such a long break in schools, children, especially girls, are likely to drop out of the educational system. To begin with, how should the government ensure that children come back to school? Some children must be earning for families now, and it may be harder to get them back to school. How can parents be reassured about the promise of the educational system? So you're right. Um, this is one of the big dangers. The Future at Stake publication argues very strongly that every child is to be brought back. It took us 20 or more years to get every child 
into school. And I know I was associated with the district primary education program in the 1990s, how difficult that was. And we have suddenly lost that in 18 months, okay? So we don't know how many children are disengaged from school. Even in countries like the US where online education was provided, they estimate a significant number of children just disengaged. That means they were not following classes and they won't want to come back to school. And therefore in India where that affects the majority, there are two main risks. Children may not actually return to school because of child labor, child marriage, or lack of motivation. Or if they return, they will struggle with the academic program if it's too difficult initially because they've had no opportunities to learn and then they will drop out. So the problem has to be taken very seriously. You said children must be earning for families now, so it may be harder. If, let's consider the problem. If children are working, it's because of their parents' poverty. We must address that problem, the problem of the parents' poverty. So social assistance programs have to provide adequately for the households. And the way to look at it is, at it is this way, that supporting this kind of social assistance expenditure is better than suffering deep and irreversible losses in human capital of young children because, just because they are taken out of school due to poverty, because it's not possible to rebuild that human capital later. So it's not a problem of whether parents value children's education or prefer to send them to, to earn. It's a question of whether society values the children's education. And if a parents are poor, to compensate for them. But there's also a second reason why children may not attend school, that if, if the school is not interesting and, you know, or they've forgotten how to learn, they'll join for a little while and they leave. So, that is a job not of social assistance. That is the job for the school and the education system to change the way in which we are teaching. That's why we say not only resume, but also renew education. Do it in a different way. Yeah. So a subhead in your report says equity means providing an enriched curriculum, focusing on core competencies for the disadvantaged, not a watered down syllabus covering all subjects. So how can equity be at the forefront of the educational recovery effort? Can you explain this more? Yeah. So equity is means that the disadvantaged kids in our country, who in our country are not the minority, in fact, happen to be the majority, that they should have access to meaningful learning opportunities to overcome and to compensate for the disadvantages they we put in. Normally, equity is, is treated as if everybody should just have equal opportunities. But when one set of children have just not had any opportunity, and you say, well, we are going to give them the same treatment as everybody else, that is actually inequitable. And we are saying focus on three areas, okay? And the three areas are literacy, mathematics, and socio-emotional development, because they are really fundamental to everything else. Now, when we say that, some people can think, oh, we're just giving a watered-down syllabus. We're saying it's not that, you know, 
cramming eight subjects or six subjects into the same time when children have known nothing, it's just like giving them, a, you know, festival food when they're actually not able to digest even the simplest kitchery, right? So it's a it's an illusion to think that you're providing them with a kind of rich, you know, uh, fair, educational fair, when actually they can't eat it. Um, so what you have to do is really not water down the syllabus, but enrich it with the right kind of nutrients that is in literacy and mathematics and socio-emotional development. So it means, for instance, if you give more time for literacy instruction, let's say three or four hours, which is what we are saying we should do, then you can't be just droning on from the textbooks. You need new storybooks, new materials. Teachers need to be trained. And it means, therefore, rethinking what is taught and how it is to be taught. Also, what is your opinion about examination as a tool of assessment in this scenario? You've raised an important point because examinations at this time would be actually very, very counterproductive for these kids. We say what is required is simple formative assessment tools. You do need to assess children, but you need to assess where they are in order to teach them appropriately, um, maybe to form little groups and then moving them forward. Teachers need to be provided these and trained how to use them and how to organize instruction based on this. But there should be no tests really, especially tests which select or grade kids and so on. And even the 10th standard exams should be reconsidered. It's meaningless to test children on what they have not learned you know, and then give them grace marks to allow them to pass. This is just a, just a gimmick, you know. So we shouldn't do that. We should really have meaningful assessments which help the children and the teachers and not put extra burden on the children to and, and advanced countries are reforming or changing the way in which they're administering examinations. So why shouldn't we do, do that? Okay, so going forward, what do you suggest schools should consider when strategizing a learning plan for students post-COVID? Can you also talk about emotional learning and its role in the overall development of the child? We recommend having a multi-year plan for students, right? At the school level and definitely at the state level. And several countries are doing that because people realize that this will take months if not years, for children to come back. At the same time, we're not prescribing one plan for every school because the contexts are so different. You need an overall approach, overall guidance, but at the school level, we have to help the school, the individual school and teacher to really develop a plan for their context. Just think about this. A school may have a lot of kids coming from private schools, right? Because the children have not been able to pay fees, they've transferred, they may have migrant children coming back. So how are you going to deal with these multiple situations? Children have different language experiences, experiences, backward, back, you know, background experiences, and therefore you need a plan at the, um, at the school level. Uh, and because schools in the HMs and teachers don't have experience with this, they need support with this. 
I've discussed socio-emotional learning at length before. It is true, but I can stress again, it's truly very important for a child's development. What does it mean? It means things like the ability to express one's thoughts. It means self-confidence, regulation of emotion and impulse control, empathy for others, cooperation, and so on. And these can be taught explicitly. Different kids and different at different stages of development have different levels of the socio-emotional development. You know, young adolescents, there's a lot of uh, problem of, you know, frustration, anger, and so on. And they have been at home for two, three years, right? And two, I mean, sorry, about two years. Um, they would find it difficult to co cope. So, it's, it's not to be taught as a subject. It must be infused in all the teaching learning. But you can have some explicit teaching also. Now, what are some of the strategies to avoid? We think there are things like short-term, very short-term bridge courses to rush through prior academic content. We think grouping children into so-called remedial classes, this can be damaging to self-confidence of children, especially if, you know, Dalits, Adivasis, all those are put in the so-called slow classes, right? And it damages self-esteem. So it stigmatizes them. Though we think grouping for specific tasks, that may be required, but we really must avoid a situation where you reinforce the existing inequalities, caste, tribal, whatever other group inequalities there are, under the guise of providing remedial education and so on. So again, you know, to give an analogy from health, a person may require intravenous fluids, right? But the rate and the quantity, the speed, etc., depends on your medical condition the body size, the age, and so on. Now, we're not saying we can have individualized treatment like that. It's just impossible. But at least you have to have some differentiated approaches. OK, so far, we have focused on the needs of children and their families. Could you also shed some light on the support teachers and schools need in meeting these learning outcomes? Obviously, teachers are going to be very central to the um, education recovery effort, right? They are the, the people on the front line. And what they do, how they behave, what they communicate is going to be central to whether the effort works, you know? Um, and, and the main thing to convince them is that it cannot be business as usual. Many of them know that. It's not that they don't know. But if they are told from the top as if to behave as if nothing has gone wrong, as if nothing has happened, then they will behave like that, that there's no educational emergency and so on. If this is what is communicated to them, they will behave as business as usual. Second thing is, we know from all the research around the world that one-off training does not help them. So just having some mass training, telling them now we are doing it this way, it's not going to help because to change behaviors, to change the way in which people uh, teach, this requires ongoing support because it's a new approach. So your entire diet, BRCs, CRCs, all that has to be aligned with a, a new model of coaching support for teachers. That means whenever they need help, 
they get it. Ideally, it's the HMs also. But um, teachers also need additional support. And let's not forget that they have suffered mental trauma also. Many of them have died, their colleagues have died, or their families have been affected. Um, so many states actually require more teachers because more enrollment is coming into the public schools. You need additional instructional time. So they truly are at the bearing the brunt of the education emergency. But if they take the attitude, we can do nothing because nobody is supporting us, neither the government nor the society, this is just going to end up like a disaster. So that's why we are saying it needs a comprehensive approach. Okay, so is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners? For us as a society to think that if we can ignore the plight of, you know, close to 200 million, more than 200 million children, what does that speak about us as a society? Uh, I think the image we should have in our mind is that these tens of millions of children are stranded on one side of a river with a deep chasm, okay? A small section has got over to the other side and is carrying on, you know, uh, as normal, so to speak. The bridge we have sent across to these children is being lifted up very rapidly. So most children not able to get on, those who have got on have, are falling off. And imagine the situation then when these children reach the end of school, what will they be coming out as? You know, they will not have basic literacy, numeracy skills. They will not have the confidence. They will feel that they have been cheated by society. And in a world in which technology is advancing and which is increasingly globalized, these children would have been given a raw deal. So I would say, let's tackle this education emergency seriously. Let us treat this as an education emergency. And the media has a big role to highlight the nature of the education emergency by reporting from the ground level up. Uh, and we have to bring it to the front pages and the you know, front lines of what is going on in this country. Please rate our podcast and leave a comment if you like it. Underreported and underrepresented stories can become mainstream only if it reaches more people. So please support us by visiting our contributing page on our website sunoindia.in or follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram.